Let's go back to Romans 8. Let me, sh- let me do something um, that I hope will be profitable for God's people. Uh, gang, we're going to look at verse 15 tonight, and I think that we can... Let, let me read it. I think we can uh, finish up verse 15 tonight. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the, the text before us tonight, and I, and I think we can cover it. Um, but there's something I want to do before we get to it, actually. Um, we're almost at the midway point of Romans 8. Uh, of course, verse 19 would be the midway, but we're almost there. And I hope that you've been able to pick up something uh, from Romans chapter 8 as to the intent of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I um, said it so many times that I was being scoffed at because I said it so often. About verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and I've said it again and again and again. That is his theme. He's trying to communicate um, the safety that is to be enjoyed by believers. And then he uh, closes this chapter, as you know, on this, this, this stirring statement that so many of you are familiar with. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing? He opened by telling you there's no condemnation. Then he closes with this, this stirring uh, assurance that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Now, guys, my, my point is simply this. The, the Apostle Paul is, is a model in a lot of ways, but one of the things that I've always loved about Paul is that he is a model pastor. If anybody wanted to pastor his people, uh, it was Paul. And he did things, you know, that most pastors I know have never done. You know, he wrestled with wild beasts and Ephesus and all that business because he was so interested in the well-being of, of the people. This is a pastor on display, and um, he is teaching things. And my point simply is, it was very, he was very concerned that people enjoy their safety. He was very, this chapter is devoted to, to communicating how important it was to him as a pastor of some people that they understand their security and so he goes to great lengths to communicate it and describe it. And that's where we're right in the middle of him is describing it. But the, the, uh, the guts of the chapter are bracketed by these great appeals. Uh, verse 1, there's no condemnation. And then uh, verse 39, nothing will separate us. Neither height nor death nor angel. Nothing will separate us. Do, do you get the, the sense of what he's trying to do? He wants you. He wants you to know how safe you are. Now, which leads us or brings us to a subject, a topic that, that I hope is not a, um, a, a problem for you, but we're going to look, we're going to treat it as if it is. It is the, it is the struggle of assurance. And, and basically, ladies and gentlemen, that's what he is, he is doing here, trying to get you to the place or get us to the place where we can enjoy that, that, that sweet sense of safety. I, I brought a book with me, uh, and I'm just going to read I'm not going to read you a lot out of it, but 
Um, I don't know whether this is an issue for many of you. I have a sense that it might be. And uh, this was probably uh, I, not the first book, but certainly one of one of the first books that I ever read as a Christian. I really don't even know how I got a hold of it, but it's by an old Anglican, uh, J.C. Ryle. Uh, Ryle, I think, made it into the 20th century, maybe 1905 or something. Uh, but he was a great Anglican, and um, and he's this book is entitled Holiness, and I would recommend it to you. But one of the, uh, I mean the, the entire book is good, but one of the the, uh, the chapters, chapter seven is on the subject of assurance. And it's as good a treatment over that subject as anything I've ever read. And um, uh, if it's a struggle for you, then I would encourage you. Cindy, do we have this book in our, in our bookstore? Uh, uh, Holiness by J.C. Ryle? Yes, it's back there. I, there's even a, uh, a, uh, uh, a section of about 30 pages, no, it's not that much, of about 10 pages on just notes from uh, uh, what he would call great divines of his day. On the subject of assurance. Now, guys, um, um, let, me, let me tell you part of my, my motive. Part of my motive is, well, the primary part of my motive is that this, this pastor, by the name of Paul, he had a concern that, that the people could enjoy their sense of safety. So if Paul had that concern, any pastor worth his salt should have the same concern should have, the, have a concern that the people um, to which he ministers are in a posture of great confidence about the, the well-being of their soul. I just want to read you just a couple of quick things out of here because I, if this is a struggle, you, you're, you're welcome to come look at it afterwards. But I would encourage you to get the book and read this. It's probably 40, 50 pages on that subject. But um, he, he uses the text out of 2 Timothy 4 which is 6, 7, and 8, and where Paul says, um, I am now uh, ready to be offered uh, at the time of my departure in his hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And, and what he says is that Paul is looking downward to the grave, and he does so without fear. Can you do that? Paul does that. He looks downward at the grave, and he does so with no fear. The grave is a chilling, heart-sickening place, and it is vain to pretend it has no terrors. Um, it is, guys. I mean, if, if you tell me that you're not afraid of death, then you will probably lie about other things. But um, it is a, a chilling sight. And, and he says, it's vain to pretend it has no terrors. Um, a good conscience will save no man, wash away no sin, nor lift us up one hair's breadth towards heaven. Yet a good conscience will be found a pleasant visitor at our bedside and dying hour. Won't it? Ain't that the truth? Wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of confidence that you read Paul? And, and, and that's what he's trying to give the Roman church. Um, uh, he talks about how the, the Roman Catholic Church denies that the, even the possibility of having this. And calls it a damnable and pernicious heresy. That is, what, what, what I'm saying Paul is trying to teach you in Romans 8, and what this chapter is all about the Roman Catholic Church would call that a damnable and pernicious error. <laughs> um, they, they consider it bordering on presumption. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to keep on reading, but I'm telling you guys, this is a, if, if that's a struggle in your life, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a pastor worth my salt, I should be concerned that it not be a struggle in your life. So I'm going to try to teach on it tonight. 
And, and I'm suggesting that J.C. Ryle does a much better job than I do, uh, or I will. And um, I encourage you to pick that, that uh, volume up. But let, let me tell you, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story right now. But I've told this story before, but I got it right out of there. <laughs> this illustration, it came right out of that book, right out of the J.C. Ryle treatment on the subject of assurance. He talks about two men who are sons of the same father, and the father dies, and the father uh, wills to them uh, two identical ten-acre plots side by side. Um, father dies, and there is what he wills to his sons. He leaves them some real estate. And they are, they are ten acres. They are as identical as two ten acres can be. There's, uh, neither one of them has trees. They're fertile land, right side by side. It's a 20-acre plot, down the middle, ten acres for this boy and ten acres for that boy. And um, so one son, uh, excited about what he's just inherited, goes to his ten-acre field and begins to work it. Uh, tilling the soil and pulling out the reeds and, and planting the crops and watering and digging the furrows and doing what you do when you, you, know, you plant 10 acres. The other son is excited about his inheritance, but he's, not, he's, he's just not real sure that he can believe his, what, he's, what the lawyers have just told him. So he goes down to the title office and he begins to research the titles and spends hour upon hour researching the titles to make sure that that piece of property is his. Now tell me. At harvest time, who's got a bigger crop? It's the guy with confidence that this thing is his. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons that Christian, that the evangelical world produces such little harvest is because we're still struggling over this thing. This is something that should be settled for us. And, and that's not to say that it won't come back up over the years. But this is something, and, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there, there is a group in the evangelical world that comes to this way too easily and way too quickly. But this is a privilege of ours, and it ought to be well within our possession. It's important to the Apostle Paul, the great pastor of the Christian church, it's important to this pastor. If it's important to him, it ought to be important to me. That you, you have this, that you be in possession of this. So that's what I'm going to do with this text tonight. I'm going to try to teach this really through Romans 8.15. Now, let me say to you guys uh, real quickly. Um, let's say you are here tonight without being in possession of this. That doesn't mean that your soul is in danger. It might mean that you have... Uh, uh, you have inadequacies in your understanding. It might mean that you have uh, a um, personality flaw. It might mean all kinds of things. But just because you don't have assurance does not mean that you're not safe. But wouldn't it be nice to have that assurance? Wouldn't it be nice to get to work on the piece of property and see how much you could produce off of it instead of spending your time down in the title office? Ladies and gentlemen, it, it's, it, it's a very practical concern. You are more productive. You are more fruitful as a believer when you have this. Instead of being, you know, lying in your bed at night, rolling over in your head. Well, you know, I really did a bad thing at work today. And, you know, I wonder if I'm, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Um, I, I, it's important to Paul. It's important to me. We're going to look at it. So that's by way of introduction. 
most systematic theologies, ladies and gentlemen, would say that there are three grounds of assurances. Three grounds. Uh, the first one is the promises of God. Now, um, I, we're, we're not really going to look at this one tonight because really Paul is spending his time on the next on two and three. But let me just say real quickly, to use this is to reason syllogistically. You know what a syllogism is? You, you had that stuff in college, didn't you? I mean, did you ever take forensics? Um, uh, syllogisms have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. Um, the major premise is um, all who believe are saved. That's the major premise. And then the minor premise is I believe. So the conclusion is... I'm saved. That's, that's what it means by using this as a grounds of one's assurance. We go to the promises of God and we find this one. The major premise is, all who believers say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then the minor premise is, well, you know, I believe that. And thus, I reason to this conclusion, I am saved. That's what I mean by reasoning syllogistically. This is a syllogism. Major premise, minor premise, conclusion. That's the first grounds of assurance. The second grounds of assurance is a changed life. Now, do you remember, um, many of you were on a cruise someplace last week, but you remember out of verse 14, what we did, and when we looked at verse 14, it says, um, and all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Or it might say, uh, the sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit. I forget exactly the order, but those who are, and and I, I mentioned eight characteristics of someone who is led by the Spirit. Eight things that are somewhat objective in nature. For instance, I have an appetite for God's Word. Ladies and gentlemen, the unregenerate world does not have a desire to know God. If you do, that is an objective piece of change that has gone on, that has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. Basically, what you got in verse 14 last week, well, what I gave you in terms of teaching it, was eight pieces of description of the kind of changed life that would allow you to have assurance. That's the second grounds for for assurance. And then the third one is the witness... Of the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, that's where we are in this text. If you will notice in verse uh, verse 15, which is the the text before us tonight, it it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're talking... Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That is the, and we're going to look at that after Easter. We'll come back to verse 16. But it's introduced to you. This, this ground right here is introduced to you, or introduced to you in verse 15. So, guys, um, we, we, we somewhat did this and accomplished this last week. This is what we're looking at tonight. Um, this, this ministry of the Holy Spirit that is um, well, I need to save that. So, gang, um, 
Understand this. Remember I said last week, the, all six of you who were here, uh, I said something about the tests, that is, make your calling and election sure, um, uh, and that, that Second Corinthians passage that talks about test yourself and all that business. When Paul issues those charges to examine yourself, it's not so that he can minimize the number who were, or, uh, that are in. He, well, that's not rightly said. He's not trying to make sure that you know that you're out. He's trying to make sure that you know you're in. Applying a test to your soul, ladies and gentlemen, is so that you can have this, which is the desire of the Apostle Paul, that all of us, not just a few really holy ones, but, um, but all of us, every man that names the name of Christ should be able to enjoy this. And it makes all the difference in the world, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of how much fruit you produce over the course of your Christian experience. But, in, but in this, it also makes a difference in the terms of enjoyment of who I am as a Christian. Okay, so let's take a look at the text itself. Uh, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage. You know, I'm sorry, guys. I can't even see my Bible anymore. I know this gets annoying, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm too vain to wear them all the time. There it is. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, folks, um, what you have in verse uh, 15 is another test to determine if we're sons of God. That's what you got in 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you're led by the Spirit of God, what does that look like? I gave you eight points last week. What does it look like? When when people are led by the Spirit, what does that look like? Well, I offered eight things. You might can find others. Um, Now, so those who are led by the Spirit, those people are sons of God. All right? Then he comes to verse 15 and says, For you did not receive the spirit of of, of bondage again to fear, but you received... The spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. That is, this next test has to do with adoption, which we've gone over a couple of weeks in the past. That is, you and I are not natural born sons of God. There's only one of those. But once we're adopted, we are legally his son. That adoption seals that. Now, what, what does this, this, ado- this process of adoption uh, look like? Well, there's two kind of two halves of it that is mentioned in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now, gang, look. In the verse, the word spirit appears twice. One time, at least in my copy, I don't know about yours, but one time it's capitalized, the other time it is not. Which lends itself to a little bit of confusion, I think. Because both of the things that are being mentioned in verse 15 are works of the Holy Spirit. What you get in the first half of verse 15 is um, when, when the first time the word spirit is used, it refers to a work of the Holy Spirit when he begins to make, uh, to, to make us aware of the things that will eventually cause us to see our need for Christ. The first thing that goes on in this, this, this route towards coming from a non-heir to an heir, from coming from a non-son to a son, 
the first thing that happens is that the Spirit authors a work in us um, that produces this sense of bondage, this sense of fear, which eventually convinces us of our need for Christ. It's the Holy Spirit's first work where he often uses the law to convince us, ladies and gentlemen, to convince us of our need for something beyond what we're doing. That work normally manifests itself in a sense of condemnation and fear, as the text says. Now, we're not going to raise any hands around here, but you know what, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you can think back to the days when you became a Christian where there was a sense of fear? You know, if somebody told you about the eternality of hell, and, and there was a, and, and some of you would even say, and this is not altogether illegitimate by, by any means, but some of you would say that you are now a Christian because you were afraid of going to hell. I hope it's, I hope it's uh, grown into something sweeter than that. But in the beginning, ladies and gentlemen, that is the first work of the Spirit. The first work of the Spirit that, we're, that always precedes adoption. It is a normally an, an, an application of the law to our conscience. And it creates within us a sense of condemnation, a sense of fear, a sense of bondage even. That's the way this thing, adoption, takes place. It starts with this spirit of bondage, but it doesn't stop there. That's not where it stops. That's just where it starts. Gang, um, the, the spirit of bondage may vary considerably in terms of its intensity in, in, in from one person to the next person. But the Spirit always produces a sense of sin. Always. Gang, I, um, I, I hope this will be... But some of you from time to time have privileged me by bringing your children in to see me because you... Um, you want them to join the church, and you want them to see the pastor before they before they join the church, and that's all very not- um, noteworthy and, and noble, and I, I applaud you, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, once they get into my office, they're scared stiff, and they you know they clam up and won't say a word, and so the mothers have to take them out in the hall and spank them a little so they can come back in and say talk to the preacher. It's really not a very productive meeting uh, most often. But gang, I just want you to know what I'm looking for. And I think it's what you should be looking for. We're not looking for some kind of regurgitation or some kind of tape playing that I invited Jesus into my heart. You know, I've told you I don't like that language in the past, although it's, it's not illegitimate. I'm just not a fan of it. But that's not as apparent what you're looking for. You're looking for, does your child have a sense of sin? That's what I mean, ladies and gentlemen. When this process of adoption takes place, it begins with a sense of sin that has been created by the Holy Spirit Himself. I don't know what God uses. Sometimes it's hell. Sometimes it's Ten Commandments. That's not the point. The point is that the adoption begins with a spirit of fear. 
you know, I, I've told you this story. I won't go back and do it, but I've told you about my, right after, right before I graduated from college and right before Susie and I married, I went to Atlanta to be interviewed by the CNS Bank, and I told you it was just a terribly disconcerting thing for me, and, and I went into that bar and started to drink and all that business. I, you've heard me tell that story. I'm not going to bore you with it. But, I, I mean, I've never done that before in my life. I ate those little, you know, those little fish that we have here in the nursery. You know, I hope they're not serving beer back there. But, but that's what I was doing. I was sitting in a bar on, the, on Peachtree Street and drinking beer and eating those little things, and I thought, my point is, ladies and gentlemen, for me, it was then. It was then that that spirit of fear that led to a sense of my own condemnation and my own, uh, that, that, I'm, that I'm in a bad way. Gang, it is normally the effects of the law and the result is fear, at least for some period of time. You know, what I find today is that most of the time that non-Christians live in, a, in a, a profane sense of security, which they have no right to, but they still got it. But, but if the Holy Spirit begins His work, if the Holy Spirit begins His work, the way it begins and always precedes adoption is this first work of the Spirit that convinces us, I'm in trouble. I, I'm overcome. I, I don't know how you, what language you want to use. I don't know the intensity that occurred. But somewhere the Spirit authored this in you. But ladies and gentlemen, that was simply his first work. And he goes on from there in a further work. And in that further work, he discloses to us the beauties and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Look, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear first work, but you received the spirit of adoption. Now, gang, um, you you see how the text is broken up kind of in two halves. The first half describes that first work of the spirit that produces in us that sense of, oh my, there is something greatly missing in my soul. But that's not where the spirit leaves us. You move on now in the text to see the second half of this. Um, I have to tell you, just as an opinion, much of 21st century evangelicalism is willing to, t- to take just that. It's the difference between conviction and conversion, ladies and gentlemen. And, and I say to you, risking your misunderstanding, much of what I see in revivalism is nothing more than producing the spirit of fear and in bondage. That's all it is. You know, Billy Graham says that 90% of the people who come forward in his crusades ultimately never end up in the kingdom. Because it's, it's a confusion of this first work of the Spirit and this completed work of the Spirit. This conviction that never concludes in conversion. But, gosh, look at it real quick. It was, this, it was the Holy Spirit that produced the feeling of, of bondage and fear. And it is the Holy Spirit, in the same way, who leads us to the sense that we're sons. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, for those of you who are linguists, this is an Aramaism, ladies and gentlemen. I think you know that, that Jesus probably didn't speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. 
The reason that the New Testament is written in Greek is because it was the most uh, widely accepted national language like English is today. Uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're flying a plane, that if you're going into an airport in wherever, that the, the, uh, the uh, towers speak in English because it's the, it's the accepted language of the world. The Europeans hate that, but um, uh, it's the accepted language of the world. Well, the accepted language of the world, when this was written, was Greek. But what you find, and by the way, Jesus uses that same term when he's on the cross. You, you see that Eloi, Eloi, Salabak, that's Aramaic as well. But he uses this Abba term. It's a, it's a, it's a, an Aramaism that I, I hate to get sentimental with you, but it, it would, it would be a very sweet and intimate daddy. Um, and then here's where um, I, I risk great misunderstanding. But guys, what is being described in the second half of verse 15 is something that essentially belongs to the realm of feelings and subjectivity. Now remember, up in verse 14, I gave you what I hoped were eight objective evidences or descriptions of people who are being led by the Spirit. Here is another evidence of people who are led by the Spirit, or people who are um, adopted. That's better said. And it is that at some point in their Christian existence, they are so overwhelmed with the sense of their own safety, their own security, their own intimacy with the Father, something comes blurting out of their soul. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't make that up. You'll notice they cry out. This is not a whisper. This is not a, hey, yeah, well, daddy. They cry out. There is deep emotion that's, in, that's included in this cry. They cry out, Abba, Father. You know, we looked at some objective tests, ladies and gentlemen, but this one, this one is subjective. It's, a, it's something that stems from the world of emotions, from the world of subjectivity. Objectivity is not in view in verse 15. It is in verse 14. But in verse 15, subjectivity is in view. The best way I could think of to explain it, it's kind of like human love, ladies and gentlemen. You don't have to talk yourself into being in love. It just kind of bubbles to the top, doesn't it? You don't have to convince yourself that you're in love. Because if you do, you're not in love. But there comes a point, ladies and gentlemen, in the life of Christians where they are so con- they're so moved by the fact that because God is their Father that, they are, that there's nothing that can truly ever harm them. Because God is my Father no matter what disaster, it really can't ultimately harm me. And in the midst of my recognition that this God who created the heavens and the earth has desired, has desired to call me his son. He no longer is a distant God. He's not some God of Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. He's not some deistic God. He's a God who delights to enter into familial relationships with me. And once that overtakes me, I cry out, Abba. Let me say this real quick and I'll quit. Because my my major point, ladies and gentlemen, is so that you might draw from the sweetness and taste the sweetness of assurance 
But some of you are sitting out there saying, well, that's never happened to me. I've never cried out to have a father. You know, I don't know. I feel like it. I, I, I want to suggest to you, last week when I gave you eight objective characteristics of those being led by the Spirit, if those in some measure were true of you, then you are being led by the Spirit. This, verse 15, the second half, is something beyond that. Just because this has never been evoked from your soul does not mean that there is, that there is um, danger of soul. It might mean illness of soul, but it doesn't mean danger of soul. The thing that you must go back to, ladies and gentlemen, is the the eight objectives that I gave you last week. But I'm saying, in addition to those eight objective descriptions of those who are led by the Spirit, there's something beyond that. There's something of intimacy. There's something of of closeness. There's something of of daddy-like language that comes when I realize that God is my Father. And this thing that comes bubbling out of my soul is a... Wow! He's no longer distant to me. And and it may not be a, a, a state in which you abide, but there ought to be times, ladies and gentlemen, there ought to be times that you walk out of church and say, man! Where was I? (laughs) There ought to be times when you walk out of the church and delight in knowing how safe is your soul. It might not happen every Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, but there ought to be times when you sense that there is the Spirit, the Spirit's witness to yours. And in response, I don't call him Almighty God. I call him my Father in heaven. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will bring your people to the place where they are at peace with their own souls. I pray, O oh God, that that instructions like these from the Apostle Paul will bring them to the place where they are no longer in, in a desperate strait over the well-being of their souls. Father, all of us know we're inconsistent. All of us know we have a dark side. All of us know that we're broken. And we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, on the course of trying to get that fixed and to see things improve. But while we're in the midst of that improvement, grant us that sweet sense that we can look down to the grave with all of its terrors and confidently know of our destiny beyond it. Give that to your people, O God. Set us free. Set us free from the, the, um, the meanness of the devil who would seek to get us back into the title office, examining the titles to see if it's really true. By the power of the Holy Ghost, assure us 
of the beauty of what Paul is teaching. We ask it, as always, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.